Well, I'm green. That's all. All right. Okay. Do over. Ready? Okay. Today we're going to speak about a subject in which most believers are ignorant because it is a topic on which our pulpits are too often silent. It's a subject God wants to use as a powerful motivation to lead us on to godly action. And that means it's a subject that Satan has masterfully and insidiously worked tirelessly so you and I don't see it, we don't heed it, and we most certainly are not captivated by it. And the subject is this, the subject is Jesus and justice. Jesus and justice. Now, I'm not talking about social justice, I'm not talking about personal justice, I'm talking about eternal justice. And so our sermon today is this, the believer's reward. The believer's reward. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. The Bible teaches that hell we can earn, but salvation is a gift. That's very clear in Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. I, through my rebellion, earn separation. The wages of sin is death. I can earn hell. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, while it's true that heaven is not a reward, it's a gift, it's also true, and this is what we forget, that there are rewards in heaven, according to the Bible. Heaven is reached by faith in Jesus. Heavenly rewards are given to those who are faithful to Jesus. Now, perhaps because we don't want to wrongly conclude that salvation is by works, we, we, we fail to speak of how God rewards the believer's works. But that's kind of like throwing the baby out with the biblical bathwater. Because the Bible teaches that salvation is a gift, and yet God rewards those who are faithful. And we need to teach both parts of that, or we miss something important that is a motivation to godly action for the Christian. And so God wants us to know about Jesus' justice. God wants us to strive to glorify Him today so that He can reward our faithfulness in eternity. I want you to turn with me in the Word of God to one Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. That's on page 1212 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians 3, page 1212. And uh, let's try and get our hands around this, this concept that's somewhat unfamiliar, maybe even somewhat uncomfortable, but is entirely biblical, incredibly practical, and necessary for us to understand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to understand the reality that while heaven is a gift, the rewards that you give are based on faithfulness. And we don't want to miss out on all the wonderful blessings that we could be possessing because you are a good giver of gifts. You're a good father. You give exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, and yet you're also a wise manager and a just deity. And so you give based on faithfulness. 
We pray, Lord Jesus, that we get our arms around this, that this wouldn't lead us to a works-based salvation, which is unbiblical, but it would lead us to a godly motivation that spurs us on to godly action that we might bear eternal fruit. Pierce our ignorance today. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So the Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. You see that? There's a recompense tied to faithfulness. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. And if that's new for you, you might want to underline it in your Bibles. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Now let each one, you and I, take care how we build upon that foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of the church, friends. You can't build a church on anything other than Jesus, but when you have Jesus as the foundation, then you can start, you and I, using our gifts and talents and building something on top of it. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation, on Jesus Christ, with gold, with silver, with precious stones, or with wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, a future day, the day of judgment, capital D, day. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done for Jesus. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. Do you lose your salvation if you're not a productive enough Christian? Not according to the Bible, because your salvation is based on Jesus. But you do miss out on something. You miss out on an incredible, eternal blessing that God wants to give you. Because Jesus is just. And even though heaven is a gift, God rewards faithfulness. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now our first point today in our outlines, if you folded out, there's an outline in the middle of your bulletin, is simply this, and you really need to get your arms around it, if you only understand one thing, understand this, Jesus will reward the believer's faithfulness, Jesus will reward the believer's faithfulness, and it's right there in verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, please note that that in this passage, we've been going through Corinthians, that the one who plants and the one who waters, that's the Apostle Paul and, and the pastor Apollos, both of those men were saved by grace through faith in Jesus, amen? They were both saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But the Bible teaches that each one will be rewarded for their faithfulness to Jesus. Salvation is by grace through faith. Rewards are based on faithfulness of the Christian to his king. When's the last time you heard a sermon on that? Have you ever heard a sermon on that? Hmm. 
In verse 8, we are promised that each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, wages is the Greek word misthos, and, and misthos in secular literature refers to a monetary payment for services rendered. But in the Bible, misthos, its main use is to describe God's evaluation of a human's activities. Jesus spoke a lot about misthos, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. You couldn't get around it. For instance, Jesus speaks of people who, who are pious, who are holy, who are godly, only to keep up appearances before one another. We see this in Matthew 6, 2. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. See, you can give and God will bless, or you can give so others know that you gave. And there you go, that's what you get. But Jesus says in Matthew 6, 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus, they have received their reward. And again, about 10 verses later in Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by all. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Now, just as Jesus is just to the selfish sinner, so too it is true he will be just to the selfless saint. Repeatedly, Jesus encourages believers to faithfulness on the basis of future, eternal reward. I want you to listen again to the opening volley of the Sermon on the Mount and listen with the ear to God promising that he will reward in the future our faithfulness in the present. Listen again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Right there. This famous sermon famously begins and is interspaced over and over again with this idea of God rewards faithfulness for what we do in our heart of hearts for him and not so others would think that we're good little boys and girls but because we love Jesus with all of our heart. If you love me, obey my commandments. Hmm. Now the idea of Christian living in light of a future eternal reward, this is not some nugget buried in the Bible, some hidden treasure that only crops up once in a while. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this subject. Paul teaches it at length here in 1 Corinthians 3. He does it again in 2 Corinthians 5. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good, rewards, or evil, the opposite. The Apostle Paul uses the promise of future reward as the basis for our, uh, uh, excuse me, the Apostle Peter uses the basis of our, uh, of our reaching after future reward as the basis for our fleeing the corruption and pollution that's so present in the present. Uh, Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 11, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so the gospel writers say it, Jesus says it, uh, Peter says it, Paul says it. Did you know the writer of Hebrews speaks on this? In fact, the writer of Hebrews makes the pursuit of rewards sort of a hallmark of biblical Christianity. In Hebrews 11.6, the writer of Hebrews says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. People know that. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and then what's the rest of the verse? And that he rewards those who earnestly seek after him. The Apostle John ends the book of Revelation with words from our Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Revelation 22.12, Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Friends, this week, this week, this past week, these seven days from the last time we met, did you... Live this week in light of future reward? Did you invest each day in some way because there's an eternity and the king who rewards faithfulness? Olympians train their whole lives. I mean, they start as little bitty guys on the rings and they, they eat certainly and they get up at zero dark 30 and they, they don't go to the movies and they don't go out on Memorial Day weekend to the boat show because they're training, they're training, they're training. You, you've ever seen this life story of an Olympian, right? Olympians train all their lives for a few brief moments of reward. You and I have just one life to invest for Jesus and we can reap an eternity of reward. But we are so forgetful of which side we're in. We live in the present as though it's our future. And that's not the way God wants us to look at the present. Genesis 18.25 tells us, God will not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Indeed, will not the judge of all the earth do right. Now please understand, our reward tomorrow is not based on our results today. Because Christians grade everything based on what we see now. God grades things differently. Uh, the results of our service are always up to Jesus, but faithfulness is up to us, amen? The results of our service are up to Jesus, but, but faithfulness is up to us, and friends, you need to know that God rewards faithfulness. Listen again to verse 8, and let's get it straight. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive 
his wages according to his labor. So what does that mean? It means things like this. A godly missionary may work for 40 years in some hard foreign field and see very few souls saved in their entire ministry career in that pioneering effort. And then along comes a new missionary. And, and, and the decades of faithfulness of the first brother have, have finally penetrated the heart of the villagers, and suddenly there's a powerful, bountiful harvest among those people. One sowed, one reaped. God does not reward the first saint who persevered without seeing much success any less than the blessed one who saw the dramatic harvest. We view them differently. He does not. In fact, if you were going to put on your biblical goggles and not your normal human goggles, and you were to read those two missionaries' lives alongside Hebrews 11, you might be inclined to say the saint who persevered without seeing much fruit is probably more revered. Because remember, in Hebrews 11, Abraham was listed as a paragon of the faith because he trusted God for a city he never saw, a nation he never received, a powerful and great name he never fully saw come to fruition, a son that for most of his life he never had. It reminds me of two Old Testament prophets, both named Jay. So we're going to use JJ as our illustration, all right? So, so here's our illustration. Uh, there are two Old Testament prophets, both named Jay. Uh, one was faithful, and his results were terrible. And, and the other was reluctant, and, and, and his results were triumphant. The first Jay is the prophet Jeremiah. And, and Jeremiah was one of God's most faithful prophets, but he was sent to a stiff-necked people, and they ridiculed him, and they rejected the truth God sent him to share. And the second Jay is Jonah. And Jonah was a reluctant prophet for whom God brought a citywide revival among history's most horrible, the Ninevites. And then Jonah got mad at God for using him to save them. Don't tell me success is the litmus test. Hmm. Friends, we loud what we see as success, but God rewards faithfulness. Now, as a believer, I know that you have faith because that's how you enter into a relationship with Jesus. As a believer, I know you have faith, but Scripture's question for us this morning is, are you faithful? Because did you know that Jesus rewards a believer's faithfulness? This brings us to our second point today. Our gifts are given, our gifts are given to us by God. By his grace. Our gifts are given to us by God, by his grace. But what we do with those gifts, well, friends, that's up to us. Our gifts are given to us by God's grace, but what we do with those gifts are up to us. Listen to verse 10. According to the grace of God given me, that is, Paul was Paul, he had his gifts, he had his calling, he had his duties, because of God's grace, God's choice, according to the grace of God given to me, and then here's the part that was up to Paul. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. 
as a skilled master builder. In verse 9, Paul switches his metaphor from agriculture to architecture. Up until this point in the passage, it's been all about where God's field and there's planting and watering, and, and the imagery is really lowly. But now he switches from God's field to God's building. And the same Paul who tells us, look, don't take personal glory in your role. Uh, uh, you're a servant. You're, you have a low status. Uh, the water boy, the plow boy, he says, that's how you ought to look at yourself. We're not that important. Christ is important. We're just tools. The same Paul who, who, who de-escalates when it comes to his own glory is willing to say, I was a master builder in my diligence. See, when it comes to his glory, he doesn't care who gets glory. I'm a plow boy, I'm a water boy, we're a nobody. But when it comes to his faithfulness, then he says, wait a minute, I was a master builder. Most Christians would rather fight for their glory with the big title than put in the work with the little title. Listen again to verse 10. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, skilled is the Greek word sophos. It's the word for wise. And, and in our previous chapters in Corinthians, Paul has cited the folly of building on, on human wisdom. Instead, Paul focused on, he says, nothing but Christ and him crucified when he was laying a foundation at Corinth. Why? Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation on which you build a church. Not on celebrity, not on notoriety, not on charisma, not on trends, not on denomination, not on personal preferences, not on music selection, not on architecture, not on, not on, not on. You build a church on Jesus, or it's not a church. It's a religious show. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That means, friends, our gospel is not political, it is spiritual. It means our ends are not temporal, but eternal. It means our goals are not mere morality, nor even social responsibility. No, they are to extend God's glory by bringing new sons and daughters into his family for eternity. That's the church's mission to make disciples, to make disciples. And what that means is then that our methods cannot be derived from pop psychology, what we want, nor anthropology, what sort of motivates and moves us, but rather it must be built from biblical theology, what God wants and how he wants to use us according to his word. And today many who call themselves evangelicals, are clamoring for a progressive gospel, for a, a social gospel. But friends, the true gospel is not that we are to be moral crusaders. It's that we're to be gospel persuaders. Romans 1.16 reminds us to not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, the Bible says our problem is sin. And God's solution is forgiveness through faith in Jesus. And that is the gospel. And there is no other. The Bible tells us we must guard this deposit carefully because it's been entrusted once and for all to the saints. Our passage tells us, friends, what? No one can lay any other foundation than that which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul speaks of his diligence in this. In fact, he says, I was like a skilled master builder. So I want to ask you a question, Christian. In all honesty, would it be fair to say that you too were like a skilled master builder in assisting and constructing Christ's kingdom this week? This week. The one you just did. The last seven days. Have we sought first his kingdom and his righteousness? Or, or have we become preoccupied with something lesser? Because if so, watch out or you will miss something greater. Because how you spend now will impact the rewards you receive in eternity. Hmm. Brothers and sisters, may we hear this. May we internalize this. Let each one take care how he builds. Brings us to point three today. Our stewardship of God's grace will be tested by the one in whom they've been entrusted. Our stewardship of God's grace gifts will be tested from whom they were entrusted. Look again at verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or, or hay, wood, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test the sort of work each one of us has done. And if the work that anyone has built survives, well, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, and yet he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, you, you are that temple. Now, in our passage, friends, there are three people. There are three people. There are two builders and there are one destroyer. Each builder has three materials. Gold, silver, and precious stones or hay, wood, and stubble. And so it raises the critical question again. Friend, are you, are you building or are you destroying? Are you building wisely or are you building foolishly? Are you building with things that will last or are you content to do this all shoddily and fast? That brings us to our next point, point four. Building wisely is rewarded. Building wisely is rewarded. Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, with silver, with precious stones, or with wood, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives the scrutiny of the king on judgment day, well, that servant will be rewarded. Will be rewarded. Now, just as our passage speaks of three types of workers, two builders and a destroyer, so the New Testament speaks of three types of fires. And you mustn't confuse them, okay? Um, there is a fire in Scripture in the New Testament that refines believers. It purges the dross and brings the gold to the surface. Peter speaks of the refiner's fire, and it makes us purer. And that's not the fire Paul's talking about here. And then Jesus speaks of another fire, 
those liable to the fires of hell. That's a fire that's never for believers. Romans 8 is clear. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if you're in Jesus, the fire of hell is not a fire you need to be worried about. But the fire in this scripture today is not eternal fire that punishes unbelievers. It is not temporal fire that refines believers, but rather it is a fire that happens only to believers and only on the day of judgment. It's a fire that tests. It's a fire that tests. And what does it test for? Our faithfulness. A fire that tests the believer's faithfulness. And friends, if you pass the test, you get eternal reward. Listen again to the fire's effect. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test the sort of work which each one of us has done. And if that work, if that, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive. A reward. Now, there are three materials in our passage, right? So there's three fires, there's three workers. Now there's three materials. A lot of threes here. It's almost like God was triune, right? Anyway, so the three materials, there's gold, oil, uh, gold uh, silver, and precious stones that one person builds with, and then there's three materials that the other guy builds with, and those are different, wood, stubble, and hay. So the three materials that are impressive, uh, that are useful, that survive the fire, gold, silver, and precious stones, well, they're valuable, but they're also not combustible. So they survive the fire, and they carry on into the eternal. But wood, hay, and straw, they're not costly, but they sure are flammable. Now, some of us are tempted in our service to Jesus, and we want to sort of cut corners. Uh, we equivocate and we begin to calculate how we can sort of slide and hide in the kingdom and, and sort of just kind of scrape by so we don't look bad or feel guilty. And I think that's kind of the hay and straw. You know, hay and straw are used to make bricks, but they don't make it through the other side of this fire. And then there's wood, and wood is really tricky, my friends. Wood can be made to look pretty good. Have you ever seen a master carpenter make something out of wood? It's pretty beautiful. A wood can seem pretty doggone sturdy. But instead of worship, it's just religious busy work. It's activity without heart devotion. And friends, while you can fashion wood into something quite beautiful, when the fire comes, utterly consumable. The truth is, God is going to judge our motives, not just our ministry. And wood doesn't survive that test. Turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians 4.1. Next page in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4.1. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it's required of those who've been given a trust that they must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or in a human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and here it is, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. There's only praise given at this time of revealing. So it's, a, it's obviously for believers. But one of the things God's going to look at is not what you did for Jesus, but why you did what you did. And that's a much harder grade, isn't it? It is. And it's something you and I can't accurately grade. We can get an assessment based on fruit, but God knows exactly how it really is. Only God knows a Christian's motives. That means, that means a solo can be sung to the glory of God or the applause of men. And you and I don't know which one, but God does. That means a, a, a shut-in or a widow or a person near death can be visited to remind that saint of God's love, or it can be a feather on our quiver to show that we're the better believer. And God knows which one motivated you to go. You and I don't know why another brother does what he does. All we can see is fruit. God sees the heart. Friends, it's the Lord who judges us. But you need to know this. That, that, that a faithful worker uses his best, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, and, and, and does his best for Jesus. Now there's another builder in our passage, and he's found in verse 15, and it brings us to our fifth point today. Building foolishly results in a loss of the rewards Christ would gladly give us. Building foolishly results in the loss of rewards Christ would gladly give us. Verse 15 says, if anyone's work is burned up, he suffers loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. You see, our salvation is based on Christ's work, amen? When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, tetelestai, and that means it is finished. He's done everything that was ever needed to get you and I to heaven. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet, sadly, some saints take this great grace gift and then we foolishly live for the world instead of for our king. They're saved, but their productivity and then the rewards that come for faithfulness are less than they could have been blessed. When the day approaches, the great day of God's judgment on the believer, they're going to lose out on all the special blessings they could have been possessing because they live for now when God said to live for him. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Friends, salvation is a gift, but rewards are earned. And so it raises the question, Christian, are you and I living this coming week? Last week is over. You don't get a do-over. Are you going to live this week and next week, and all the other weeks, until you see the one who made the calendar in light of future reward. Now there's one more person in our passage. This person doesn't build, he destroys. And this brings us to our final point today, point six. The local church is God's dwelling, and those who destroy it, he will destroy those who spoil it, he will spoil. Point six is this. The local church is God's dwelling. Those who destroy it, he will destroy. 
Those who spoil it, he will spoil. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now it's really important that you understand something that's happening in the Greek here. The you in verses 16 and 17 is plural in the Greek. You know what that means? That means this particular temple is not referring to individual Christians. Plural. It's referring to the corporate body of Christ, either the church universal or the church local. Now, friends, just as there are three fires in the New Testament, so too there are three temples in the New Testament in regards to Christ dwelling in believers. And we need to know which one the passage is speaking of or we're going to interpret this wrong. Sometimes the New Testament refers to individual believers as God's temple. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body, individual Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, individual Christian, whom you have from God? You are not your own, individual Christian, for you were bought with a price, individual Christian. So glorify God in your body, individual Christian. Sometimes the New Testament refers to the universal church, all Christians everywhere, as his holy temple. In Ephesians 2, we see this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, that is all church-age saints everywhere, the church universal, is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also, Ephesian church, are part of that universal church, you are also being built together into a dwelling place to God by the Spirit. So there's a time when the temple is the individual Christian, but not in our passage. There's a time where the temple is all Christians, but not in our passage. Here in 1 Corinthians 3, it is not individual Christians because the you is plural, nor is it the church universal, it is rather the church local, because they were building on a foundation in the local church in Corinth, and some of them were building in that local church poorly, and some of them were building wisely. Remember, context always tells us what's really happening. So you and I, you and I are like Apollos, we're watering and we're planting and we're laying on the foundation of Jesus in this local church. Now we're either adorning it with gold and with silver and with precious stones or we are doing so with hay, with wood and with stubble. And fire is going to test our work in Christ in this local church. Now, friends, there's another person, though, in the passage. Instead of the builder, there's the, there's the destroyer. He seeks to destroy the local church, or, depending on what this word means, he seeks to spoil it. And if so, that's two different types of people. The word for destroy in the Greek is a, is a tricky word. It's the word phthero. Uh, it's tricky because it begins with an F and then has a T. Phthero, that's hard to say. Phthero, right? Sounds like Sylvester said it, right, with Tweety. That's the word. It's pharaoh. And as hard as it is to say, it's also hard to know which nuance. The word means one of two things. It either means to destroy something or to spoil something. And if it means one thing, well, then this is talking about an unbeliever trying to destroy the church as a deceiver. But if it's referring to spoiling, then it's talking about a believer who's messing up the church through their self-centeredness. And honestly, there's no clear way of knowing. And I think God left the ambiguity because I think he might be saying both. Either God's word is speaking here to the non-Christian imposter who's destroying the local church, or he's speaking to the carnal Christian 
whose me-first attitude is spoiling what God is wanting to be a God-first local church. Now, if the passage is addressing a non-Christian imposter who is destroying the local church, then that imposter needs to know there is a very scary and stern warning from the Lord of all the hosts in this passage. God says if you will destroy the local church, I will destroy you. Certainly, there are numerous other scriptures that teach this. In 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul takes comfort in Jesus' justice. When scripture says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Indeed, Jude and 2 Peter both indicate that the worst place in hell is not reserved for the mass murderer or the tin-horned dictator, but for the false teacher who worms his way into God's church. In 2 Peter 2, the Bible says of false teachers that these men blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They're like brute beasts. They're creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they will too also perish. They will be paid back for the harm they have done. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you with eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. They are an accursed brood. These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Now listen to this. And blackest darkness is reserved for them. The worst place in hell goes to the false teacher who takes the word and twists it to his own ends. Jude says the same thing. Verse 12 in the book of Jude. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They, they want to nestle their way into the church. They're shepherds who only feed themselves. They don't feed you. They take from the sheep so that they can feather their nests. They are clouds without rain. They're blown away along by the wind. They're autumn trees without fruit, uprooted and twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars. Now listen to this. For whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. The worst place in hell goes to the false teacher who destroys the local church to try to get what they want in the here and now. And so to the false teacher, to the goat kicking the sheep, to the tare trying to choke out the wheat, God says, destroy my temple and I will destroy you. Hebrews 10 is clear. Verse 29 how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know whom has said, him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So friends, if the local church is your plaything, if you think you can climb the social ladder by seeking to become some kind of church leader, you need to know that you're playing a very deadly game. If you are hell-bent on your own ends, understand that hell-sent is where that ends. To the false teacher in the church. But, again, we're not really sure what Pharaoh means in this instance. It's possible that this is meaning to spoil, not just to destroy. If so, you would render this verse... Uh, to whom spoils the church, I will spoil. If so, that is addressing the Christian. It's entirely possible that's what's in view here, given what's happening in Corinthians. And so that means if you're spoiling God's work in the local church, because many in the church in Corinth were doing just that, weren't they? 
with their factionalism, with their me-first mentality, with their adoption of human wisdom and the pushing out of biblical wisdom, with their petty jealousies and bitter rivalries, with their elevation of their own status to the elevation of Jesus' glory. If that's the kind of brother you are right now, then you better watch out according to this passage. Do you not know that you are God's temple? This church is God's temple. And God's spirit dwells within you. And if anyone spoils God's temple, a, a local Bible-believing church based on the foundation of Jesus Christ, God will spoil him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. You need to understand that God will protect his bride. And there are some saints who behave like ain'ts. And so God's church, they will taint. Did you know that? Friends, the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. He judges those who are against him, but he disciplines those he loves because he's a good father. And so God is so committed to our holiness that he will come as a refiner's fire in our lives. And the saints in Corinth had been experiencing just this. Uh, turn with me about seven chapters to the right to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. If you were in 1 Corinthians 4 a second ago, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. It's on page 12, 18 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. And listen soberly as the Bible warns carefully. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. You see, there were some people who were desecrating the Lord's Supper. They were stripping the remembrance of Jesus out of it, leaving just a cold ritual or a drunken consumption of victuals. And here's what God's Word says about that. You know what? Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and why some have died. Wow. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God is so willing to make you holy that if need be, he'll promote you to get you there. But Christians live so casually, so carnally, so momentarily, with no thought of eternity and very little thought of God being holy. You, you follow? Remember we said the Corinthians are so close to us because discipleship is a messy thing. He's turning sinners into saints, bit by bit, day by day. Praise God that he's changing us, conforming us more and more into the image of his son. But if you're so resistant as a Christian, he's open to promotion. God's holy bride is no place in which to play. This is a place to worship, friends. This is a place to grow, friends. This is a place to serve, friends. But it's never something, never something you want to lay a hold of and try to run, own, direct. You can be well-intentioned and still be painfully disciplined. Back in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 6.6, 6, maybe write this next to this passage, 2 Samuel 6.6, 6, you have David, a man after God's own heart, but he was still a man, so sometimes David was a bonehead. Can you relate? I wish I was more after his own heart. I know the bonehead part pretty well. And David had a bonehead moment. David wanted to bring the ark back from where it was resting into Jerusalem, which would be a more befitting setting. And that was a good and glorious and godly decision. It's a great idea. They were full of good intention. But they were foolish in their execution. They were foolish in their action. 
And so David didn't do what the Scripture said to do. David didn't have the priests carry the ark in the manner prescribed in Scripture with the, with the poles and the priests and the, the whole production. He said, well, that would take a long time. Let's just stick it on a cart and send it via UPS or whatever that was in there. And, and along the way, God made sure that an oxen stumbled. That was no accident. God said, I'm going I'm to shake their little plan of man. And then what happened is the ark was about to slide out of the back. The ark, when the oxen stumbled, the ark began to tumble. And a well-meaning saint, I'm sure he meant nothing but good. He wanted to make sure the ark of God didn't fall on the ground and be desecrated. And so he stretched out his hand to steady the ark of God. And when Uzzah did it, when he touched the ark, he dropped dead. Because of God's holiness, was among us. And you know, the Bible says David got mad at God. It was all David's fault. It was God's fault. Sometimes folks mean well. Sometimes Christians mean well. And so they use the flesh to fight for the local church, in the local church, and then God breaks out against that local church. And then we get mad at God when that happens in our church. But friends, God is holy. And his church is holy. And we must approach a holy temple carefully. Good intentions coupled with unbiblical action, they seem to lead to bad situations, sad situations, tragic situations, utterly avoidable, painful situations. Let's pray that we would be a people who build up God's holy temple and not those who tear it down. Let's pray that we would build with precious stones in righteous ways, befitting our great king, that we wouldn't be building foolishly or lazily or shoddily. And so to those ends, let's pray today, this Memorial Day weekend. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us to live this next week and the week after that, and the week after that, and all the weeks after that. For you tell us in Scripture, in the oldest psalm in the Bible, the psalm of Moses, that we ought to number our days. With that thinking, you're making us think about just how finite our days are. We think that it's going to just stretch on forever, but we, want, we blink and our children grow up. Time is moving faster than, than, than we perceive on a day-to-day -day basis. So, Father, would you help us this week, this year, this month, and the rest of our lives, to live in light of future reward. May we believe that you exist and that you reward those who earnestly seek you and may you put a passion in our hearts to earnestly seek you. Lord Jesus, may we build up and not tear down in your local church. May we build with gold and silver and precious stones and not with the hay, wooden stubble. Father, we ask that you would help us do this by the power of your Holy Spirit and to the praise of your Holy Son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.